Yo, 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 I have one quick announcement. So we were running this contest uh, to celebrate our 50th episode. Basically, you had to just give us a review on any platform that you're using. So that could be Apple, that could be Spotify. And if you give a review, um, we basically put your name into a hat, uh, <laughs> literally a physical hat. We, we did this uh, physically and drew your name. So um, we actually picked two winners for this one. So you get full access to our content strategy course. Um, sorry for any mispronunciations, but Abbas Sarawi and Emma Fanning. So I'm going to uh, follow up with you guys. I'm going to uh, shoot you an email, but you'll have full access to our course. So felicidades, congratulations, and thank you so much. Um, all right, on with the show. Hello, hello. This is David Kim from Omniscient Digital, and you're listening to The Long Game. In this conversation, I speak with Alfie Marsh, the head of U.S. go-to-market at Spendesk, a corporate card and expense management software that helps businesses control budget, pay vendors, and track all company spend. In our conversation, we start off talking about Alfie's role as a head of U.S. expansion for Spendesk, and then we pivot to talk about his humble beginnings, how he thinks about his long game, and the importance of taking care of mental health, particularly in the workplace. He even shares his most impactful piece of advice he got from Matthew McConaughey. Now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Alfie Marsh. All right, Alfie, so it's great to have you on the Long Game Podcast. Thanks so much for making the time. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's a, it's a new year. It seems like the first week is always everyone firing off on all cylinders, going hard the first week. How are you feeling going into 2022? I'm feeling good. I feel well rested. I was uh, I was in a, in a cabin in the middle of the forest in, uh, near Tahoe over Christmas. And I don't know if you saw, there was a big snowstorm, two meters of snow. And uh, that was a, a really fun way to spend Christmas. So I feel uh, well fed, well rested, and ready to rock and roll. That's amazing. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was in Tahoe, right around this time too. I think they got nine feet of snow, uh, and we were freaking out. We were supposed to stay for another two nights, and we like we had to rush, change our flights, and get out that day before the storm came in. But sounds like that's a pretty common occurrence out there. It's it was uh, pretty pretty naughty. We uh, I think it was. Um, yeah, there was. <clears throat> we ended up getting stuck there for three extra days, and uh, you could literally swim through snow. But uh, yeah, that's another story for another day. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> All right. Well, let's jump straight into it because you, you have an interesting background. You started off in finance and investment banking, moved into sales, and then now you're leading U.S. go-to-market at Spindesk. Tell us about that journey. How? What did it all look? What were the decisions you had to make starting from from your background in investment banking? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I, I think I originally, you know, I, I grew up from, you know, relatively humble beginnings. And uh, to be quite frank with you, m- most of my mindset, you know, I've always been ambitious, always been hungry. And uh, as a teenager, my mindset was always, I want to make money and, you know, be successful. And for me, you know, it was kind of going through that period of time with the 2007, 2008 financial crisis. It was funny because although it was a big financial crisis, it was also a lot of headlines of like bankers making X amount of money. And, you know, a lot of people might have hated the industry, but I was like, oh, there's quite a lot of money being made actually over there. Maybe I should go over there. Um, and so I kind of, you know, set my career path trajectory to go into, you know, banking and uh, that kind of side of things. Anyway, 
ended up working at Bloomberg, which is not an investment bank. We ended up selling. Um, I ended up selling trading solutions, electronic trading solutions uh. to bank to banks and hedge funds. So I was in that space, but not directly working there. But it was it was a funny time because ultimately the industry is in like you know big decline. Um, every you know every week I was there, there was you know, hundreds of people being laid off from all of like the, the clients that we had. So it was kind of a weird time. Um, but at the same time, similar to me, there was a lot of other people that were, you know, chasing chasing the paychecks or wanting to get into the industry. So you've kind of got like a dying industry, but lots of people applying still. So super competitive. So it was just a very cutthroat kind of time. Um, and anyway, what I kind of realized is I actually really like finance. I did study accounting and finance. I liked the markets, like financial markets. Um, but I was actually prevented from doing any sort of trading or anything like that whilst working at Bloomberg because it was against the compliance. Um, it, we had access oh, to a lot, yeah. a lot of data. So I was like, well, I'm not actually able to do the thing I actually kind of like. I'm not actually technically in banking. I was like, I'm not actually sure this is an industry I really want to be a part of anyway. <laughs> um, and all of that kind of came at a time, you know, there was about 20,000 employees in the company. And you'd be having conversations with some of the old guys that have been there for 20 plus years. And the thing that always excited me was the conversations of, back in the day, in the old days, when it was, you know, a few hundred people and they used to, I don't, this is a fun fact, Bloomberg has one of the largest private fish collection in the world, like tropical fish collection in the world. Fish collections, like, okay. Yeah, it's like guaranteed uh, largest in Europe and unofficial largest in the world. And the reason why is they, they started buying a goldfish for every Bloomberg terminal that they sold. <laughs> and then, <laughs> they've obviously sold a few over time and then it kind of just grew into this thing. Um, but you know, it's stories like that kind of just like, you know, when the whole market was there for the taking and you're going against the, the banks and creating this innovative product and it's all this, you know, kind of like competitiveness and it's entrepreneurial, um, kind of endeavors. And that's actually what got me going. And I was like, here at 20,000 people, I'm a cog in a machine. It's also an industry I'm you know, not too keen about. So like, I need to be in a startup. I need to be in the genesis of something, uh, looking at the market where it's all for the taking. So, you know, what year, also, what year was that when you decided that? Uh, so I'm trying to think, when did I uh, start there? So I must have started in 2014 and I was there for just under three years. So about 2017. And I, I probably, I'd say about halfway through is really when I had that kind of realization, but didn't, didn't pull the trigger till uh, a lot later. Um, yeah. And then, you know, I met my now wife from, from working in, in the company who's, who's French. And we both decided to quit on the same day and we both moved to France. I didn't have a job, didn't speak a, a word of French <laughs> and uh, decided to go and uh, look for a job in the French startup ecosystem. And then, you know, a few years later, here I am. I applaud that. Um, what, what was that transition like moving to France, not speaking the language, trying to get a job out there? You're the second person I know that has done that. My, my other friend did it in Sweden. Um, so, I mean, curious how you find that transition. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It was tough. I think that was probably one of the, the, the toughest periods I think in my life, uh, for, for multiple reasons. Uh, we could talk about it, I think, you know, a bit later in on the podcast, but when I actually left Bloomberg, I went through a period that I, I burnt out and I had a really tough time. So I was cutting something off at the same time that I'm also wanting to start this new journey in a new field where I don't really know anything about, also in a country where <clears throat> I don't speak the language and you kind of need to learn French to, to have a, <laughs> a yeah. decent uh, kind of living out there. Um, so it was really tough. Um, but I think it's, that is also, I've always found that when my back is up against the wall, 
is actually when I produce the best results. I'm the most creative and the most innovative and, and um, yeah, and, you know, it all worked out pretty well in the end. Yeah. It's, it's interesting how it works because it kind of sucks in the moment. You're feeling stressed. You feel like you're definitely hitting burnout, but for some reason, ironically, you're producing really well. Um, so that's really cool to hear. Yeah. You, there's a, if, if you were to speak to my, my wife's mother, who I, whose house we were staying in at the time, I actually was applying for roles as a salesperson in French startups, but I was applying because there was more of these jobs for French sales roles, right? I didn't speak French at the time. So I was learning French at the time. So I'm, I'm there, I've got this phone interview with the CEO of this startup and uh, it's, it's in French. <laughs> and I mean, you know, I'm being pretty, uh, I don't know, what's the word? pretty confident for my level at the time but my <laughs> my wife's mom always laughs back at that because it was like a hilarious moment it was like the worst French ever and obviously it didn't go very well you know we, we ended up cutting the, the call too short that person actually ended up becoming a client of ours when I was uh, working at Spendisk and I actually they, we invited them to our office on a completely random thing and uh recounted that experience and it just uh, reminds me of the the transition of the journey but um yeah I came across Spendisk and uh, that luckily they were like looking for someone to look after the UK market. So uh, I had a good in in there. Yeah, yeah, it all works out. And so so you, you were first focused on UK market. Now you're heading up the go-to-market in the US. Um, yeah. what, what has your role at Spendesk look like and what's your day-to-day -day look like now? Yeah, so I think I've had kind of two core fundamental tours of duty, if you like, in the company. I've been here for nearly about four years. The first two years of my uh, career at Spendesk were really the first tour, and that was the UK market. Um, you know, I, I had three years of uh, corporate experience. I was more in enterprise sales, in finance, but again, it was not startup. So when I went to Spendesk, I was very well aware that I was um, going into a new realm and I'm going to have to learn everything from scratch. But I knew that my my path would be accelerated um, I knew in my head that, that was my opinion of what was going to happen. It luckily turned out to be that way um, because uh, I kind of already had some experience, but I needed to kind of learn everything from scratch. So I started off as an SDR um, and then went from SDR to then doing full cycle sales, closing. Um, I was the first salesperson in the team uh, and then grew that team, hired the first person, grew it into the first million of revenue and built the first kind of foundation nucleus of what would be the, the UK revenue team, so about six to eight people. Um, and then at that point, there was kind of a decision for me uh, of do I, I've, I've done that, I've done the zero to one in this market, I've got that up and running now. Um, do I lean into this and then go from the, you know, the one to 10 journey and really kind of scale that up? Or do I do the same thing for spend less in the US uh, in a much kind of bigger pond, if you like? And for me, um, I really like the early stage of the company. I mean, a lot of the stuff I write about, a lot of the conversations I have with other people, like yourself, out, you know, outside when, uh, how we met, is really about those kind of early stages and, and, and figuring that part out. And that's really what interested me. So I knew we were going to at some point open up in the US. Uh, and so I kind of, you know, put my uh, coin in the hat, so to speak. And, uh, you know, a couple of years later, here I am. Yeah. And so now... Go to market is kind of a nebulous phrase. I think it, it means different things to different people. What does it look like when you're trying to expand from uh, France into the U.S.? Usually you hear stories about expanding outside from the U.S. 
to, yeah. to Mia. What, what does it look like for you? Yes. Um, so I think there's certain phases to any go-to-market. And I think where people get confused is where multiple multiple phases kind of happen in once, depending on the type of company you are and, and, and where you are in the stage. But ultimately, you, you need to build the company from scratch in any new market and take it from the ground up. Now, that phase, that process might be accelerated for some companies, and it may take longer if you haven't got a product market fit. But ultimately, you still need to understand the market, understand the target addressable market, how big is it there? Um, what are your customers' uh, problems and how can you solve that? And does your product or solution actually respond to those those problems well enough? Um, you know, from any go-to-market, I think one of the mistakes that is made is we've got something that's working in, let's say, the UK. Uh, is that going to work in the US? And the assumption is, well, it works here, so let's just kind of replicate what we're doing and, uh, you know, and just put money into it and expect results. And that's never, never the case. And if that is the the way that a go-to-market is kind of operated, it's almost doomed for failure. Um, so you have to kind of take a beginner's mindset and take the mindset that you're building the company up from scratch from, from day one, even if you're a large corporation and that process will be accelerated, you still have to start with the basic principles. How did you, so in, in my previous roles, I wasn't the one in charge of doing the international expansion outside of the US, but there, there were internal documents and stuff about, I mean, the company's successful now, but it was like, oh, here are the things we learned. We realized that going to market for the US didn't make sense in Japan or in India. We had to adopt to what those different cultures and what the business culture is like there, which sounds obvious in retrospect. And I imagine the pushback you might've gotten was, well, but we already have this playbook. Can't we just try it to start? How did you encourage the team to also adopt that beginner's mindset and say, hey, we need to build this from scratch. We, we need to test our assumptions. <clears throat> Yeah, so I think there's a distinction to be made in in that having the assumptions, you have to have assumptions when you go and do a go-to-market. And it's just that people are making assumptions subconsciously or just not really thinking about it. But they're, they're saying, you know, the idea of it works in the UK, it's going to work in the US. Whether it's, it's said or not said, it is an assumption. And that's actually not a, uh, not a problem. That's actually, you want that. You want to write a list of hypotheses down and then your goal is to validate whether they are correct or not and then take that information in the feedback loop and change the product or change who you sell to or how you position it uh, and then move on from there. So actually, that's exactly what we did. We we said it, we work in the UK. We got this ICP and this is the value proposition. Uh, how else are we going to go to market? Well, we're going to go to the same uh, segment and we're going to try with the same pitch and the same thing because that's actually is a lot of um, there's a lot of data in there that is helpful and it's a pretty good uh, accurate way to start even if you're really like you know wrong it's a really good place to start the the, the point where uh, people go wrong is where they are fixated on that and they stay too long in that segment if they don't have product market fit and the reason that happens is because they're not looking to validate or nullify a hypothesis, what they're trying to do is just get revenue off of a business model, which they are assuming works. And that's the difference. You should always, you can start with what works, but you just have to be in that mindset of looking out for if it's not. And if so, what are you doing? Are you getting the feedback? And, you know, one very clear example is <clears throat> if you're too much in a sales mindset, when you go to a new country, you'll be trying to close the deal. 
You won't be trying to learn why the deal isn't closing if it doesn't. And that's a big uh, distinction because if you don't have the data coming in the feedback loop, you won't be able to iterate or change or change the positioning. You, what's more important than getting revenue is learning why you're getting it or why you're not getting it. Um, and so you kind of that's why it helps to have this mindset from day one, even if you are going with the same assumptions in your domestic market. Yeah. And what did you find helped with that sort of expansion? I think, correct me if I'm wrong, in some of our previous conversations before this, you had mentioned we kind of already had some content that was helping with getting into the U.S. market. What are some examples of things that helped you accelerate those learnings? Yeah. So for context, Spendesk is historically predominantly an outbound sales driven company. I'll go to market. Excuse me. And so we've got a lot of experience in generating leads and opportunities really from an outbound SDR approach. Um, And that was extremely helpful because when you don't have any resources and when you don't have any kind of focus, it's actually outbound is a really hard thing to get started if you've never done it before. Um, And it it requires a very specific kind of skill set. And we were able to leverage that just to get meetings straight away. So we were never short of meetings with customers. We were always meeting with potential customers and learning from from day one. And I think the most important thing is what's the velocity of your pipeline in terms of how many people are you speaking with and for which types of segments and types of customers. So that was a really big help. The other one you mentioned was content. So we were lucky that we invested very early on. Spenis is about five and a half years old. We invested very early on in content and SEO in particular. Um, and a lot of that was in English for our UK market, which naturally corresponds to, to the US. And so just at, similar at the same sort of time that we're starting to pick up a bit of traction in terms of a product market fit, that content was also producing results for the inbound uh, in the US. And so that was you know quite, kind of lucky. So I think that the, the biggest help is having a healthy way to find and interact with customers is the most important thing. Yeah. And and so that's, that's all really interesting hearing how somewhere along the line, someone decided early on, we need to do content in English and that that was a, a helpful way to expand into the U S. So I, I want to, I want to change gears a little bit. You mentioned something earlier at the beginning of this interview where you, you mentioned humble beginnings and, the, the sense I get is you're very driven. I notice you have a newsletter, uh, Rocket GTM, which uh, we'll link to in the show notes. You have a YouTube channel that you're creating some content for. Uh, what does your long game look like? What what are you thinking about for, for your career or what you're trying to build for yourself in the long term? Yeah, I think um, when, when I grew up, I started working at an early age. I started working at about 12, 13 years old. And I've worked well, what ever kind of since. job did you have? <clears throat> so my first ever job <clears throat> was a paper round. So I delivered yeah. newspapers in my local area. I quit that about after about six months. Because you quit was your a, job. Okay. I, I quit my job uh, after about six months because there was another job in my local music shop where uh, it was basically a Saturday boy, you know, managed the till. They gave private uh, music lessons and sold musical instruments. And that's kind of where I actually fell into loving sales because I was, it was just selling all day long and also playing guitar all day long, which was great. But, um, you know, from then on, I just got the bug for kind of like independence through uh, financial freedom. And, and, and that's kind of got where I got my work ethic. Um, however, I think it's only really uh, until I actually started working in the startup world where I realized that hard work is a prerequisite, I think. 
um, to be successful, but it's actually not the thing. It's not the most important thing. And you need to create things. And if you really want to have a big impact is to have ownership over what you're creating, whether that's you have shares in a company of a startup or you have your own business that you're doing to have that full ownership of that. So this hard work is going to get you a lot of places, but there's a lot of people that work really hard and, and aren't necessarily having the biggest impact in the world. It's very localized. So for me, I wanted to have an outsized impact, the leverage impact. And I think the best way to do that is entrepreneurship. So for me, the end goal has is, is really been to launch my own company which is another reason why throughout my career, my career path, I've really chosen those zero to one kind of go to market phases because I love that idea of I'm learning on someone else's dime and I'm taking lots of risks on someone else's money. And not only that, but I'm getting paid for it, um, which is great. <laughs> but this is like a university. This is my MBA in entrepreneurship. Uh, and I can take all those risks and those learnings before I then go and put my you know, stake in the ground and, and do that myself. So I think the end goal has always been that. Um, where that relates to things like the newsletter, this is actually you know, one of the ways that you know, we got into conversation is, for me, the newsletter enables me to A, speak my mind, articulate my thoughts and uh, explore certain things. Um, but actually the audience that it then brings in creates opportunities and conversations. And I think that I'm just trying to increase my exposure to serendipitous opportunity in a nutshell with things yeah. like that. Yeah, I love that. And uh, the your talking point around the MBA, real life MBA really resonated with me. I was just chatting with someone else earlier today and we were both talking about how we both decided not to go to business school intentionally, right? It was something for me, I revisited the idea every couple of months for a couple of years, I took the GREs, I got my test scores and was starting to do applications. And at some point I said, you know what, these jobs I'm getting are jobs people want to get after getting their business degree. I'm learning a ton right now already. Why spend two, $300,000 when I could be getting paid to learn? So I, I think we maybe landed uh, on the same conclusion there. I don't know if a MBA is somewhere in, in your path, you're thinking. No, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, you, so you mentioned uh, humble beginnings, financial freedom. I'm kind of tying some some dots together here. Tell me more about that. Typically, when folks mention financial freedom, there's something probably from their upbringing. Maybe I'm speaking. Mm. Maybe I'm projecting uh, that that made them have that goal. Yeah. Um... It's, I, I, I don't know. I spent a lot of time, you know, introspecting and, and I guess trying to figure that out. I mean, you know, I did come from humble upbringings, and I think you know where I where I grew up. There's a lot of people that kind of still in the same area and, and not necessarily um, exploring the world or kind of you know reaching their full potential. And, and that just never really interested me. I was always kind of looking outside the initial bubble that I was, you know, I, that I grew up in, and was always looking to do more. And and at each stage, I think throughout my life, I got closer and closer to kind of more like-minded people. Whereas when I went to university, there was more people that were interested in studying or like, you know, getting a degree. And so naturally you have more overlap. And now I'm, I live in San Francisco and there's a bunch of entrepreneurs and super ambitious people. It doesn't, it's not even necessarily in entrepreneurship, but there's people, there's a sense of people want to change the world and have an impact here in one way, shape or form. And, and I absolutely love that. So I feel like it's just a constant drive, I guess, to kind of, you know, reach some sort of full full potential. Yeah. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. I don't know if you listen to 
David Goggins. I know he's not for everyone, but he's always <laughs> he's always on that grind of like, you know, it doesn't end, but I'm always trying to get better. And I've been I've been re-listening to interviews and stuff with him, and it just gets me going. You know, it, it keeps me focused. Yeah, and I think there's something about um, having an outsized leveraged impact in the world where you can do something that kind of transcends, you know, yourself. And I mean, like when I talk about like, you know, the ambition from when I was younger, when I, that's the, I think the difference between how I am now to when I was maybe 15, 16 is I wanted to be successful to make myself like rich or have money myself. Whereas I feel like that is obviously, that's still a motivation, but I think that um, in itself, it's more to have an impact, a bigger impact. Like I know that I've got good skill sets in certain areas and it's like, what's the best application of that skill set? Is it in a local area where I just do something in my local community or could you have an impact with that set of skills that is unique to you on like a global uh, level. And I think, well, if you can have a global level impact, then why not? That's, that's amazing. Yeah. So I kind of want to, you know, leave a good footprint somewhere. Yeah. You've, you've mentioned outsized leveraged impact a couple of times. What, what does impact look like for you? I think to posit positively change someone's life for the better, I think. And that really depends on the, the, the person that it, it changes. Um, for some people that may just be to like inspire someone um for others that may be to improve their you know financial ability or freedom through you know better education or or maybe it's just a you know for other people it's just managing mental health better it could be many many different things to, to different people i mean to, to give an example <clears throat> in a more of a localized context one of the reasons why i write newsletters or post on linkedin or produce content is a lot of the work that you do within a company often stays within the company and no one else can either know about, learn about, or benefit from what you've learned unless it's kind of shared externally. Um, and that's also going towards your kind of career growth as well. If people only in your surrounding know about how you, you know, help that company grow, then that obviously it's better if more people are aware of that for your own you know, personal benefit. So it also overlaps there. But something that I found uh, since I moved to San Francisco is I've done way more calls with other entrepreneurs or people doing similar go-to-market things and just sort of sharing knowledge and, and kind of, you know, consulting with one another. And I think that, that kind of knowledge sharing, I love that. I really enjoy <clears throat> having a conversation, unlocking some sort of thing in the way a company's positioning their product. And then, you know, three weeks later, you know, three months later, they have a significant change in their pipeline or their, you know, their revenue because of something that you've discussed together. Mm -hmm. That to me, that, that brings me joys. <clears throat> we, we have lots of words for kind of um, sharing negative emotions like sympathy or empathy, but it's kind of weird that in the English language, we don't have a word for, you know, sharing vicarious joy. It's like, yeah. how do you get joy from someone else's joy? Like, we don't actually have a word for that. And that kind of seems kind of crazy to me because is, is what, what made you come up with that, that realization? Is there a word for that in another language that you might've heard? Yeah, there, I think there, there is it's in, uh, I'm trying to think which language it is in, is it maybe in Greek? I'll have to, I'll have to look at my research, but I came across it and that was exactly the, the point. There's a language in there because I, I learned French when I was in, in France. And one of the beautiful things about that is a, a culture unlocks the way people speak and the phrases that you, they use is you see the world in a different place. There's phrases that explain my emotions better in French than in English and vice versa. Luckily, I can use both with my wife, yeah. but you can't do that with everyone. And so that was one of the examples, you know, vicarious joy doesn't exist in the English language. Does that mean it's not important to our culture? 
whereas it is important in other cultures where there is an actual word for it. Yeah, that makes me a little sad that we don't have a word for that. Maybe we just start saying vicarious joy. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. <laughs> uh, um, you, so you mentioned uh, another thing a couple of times here is, is mental health. Uh, I imagine, you know, with this sort of ambition, you hit points of burnout maybe multiple times in your life. Um, how have you worked through that maybe for yourself? Maybe I imagine for your team too. Yeah. So the biggest experience I had was when I was at Bloomberg and I've spoken about this you know, before on, on a few other podcasts, but um, I think the, to, for a long story short, I experienced burnout after <clears throat> two and a half, three years of working at Bloomberg, at, at which point I left uh, and then went into the startup world. And one thing that I did learn from that is it's really not correlated to hard work or working hard. Mm. Um, and I think that you know, I've worked 10 times harder at Spend This than I have when I was at Bloomberg. And it's a completely different uh, dynamic. And um, the stress is a different kind of stress. It's not like a burnout stress. It's, it's, it's kind of, you know, and I had to look at that and think, okay, what was the, the distinguish, what is the distinction between, between the two? And I think that ultimately what I learned is what was driving me, my goals, my motivations were actually misaligned with who I was as a person when I was at Bloomberg. Like I said to you, when I grew up, I was thinking of financial freedom, success and investment banking and making money. And it's all me, 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 individualistic kind of thinking. And ultimately, like, you know, you chase that. It, it goes well and if you're getting promoted and make money then you're you're happy and you're fine but as soon as you you know encounter um, challenges or uh difficult situations it's kind of like oh it goes it goes wrong very quickly because you're not there for the right reasons and so it only goes well when it's going well and so you need to find something where when it's not going well it's still aligned with your values your morals your true motivations and i think that gives you the ability to drive through those tough times basically and you know i found that i found that pivot <clears throat> personally in my career um that made it you know a huge difference so i think firstly if you're experiencing burnout it's, part of it is you've got to look at are you in the right place in the first place is a is a big part of it and then there's obviously a lot of different ways that you can kind of manage on a more managing a symptom basis but you know prevention is always better than cure and i think that to prevent that sort of situation from arising, you have to be in the right place for the right reasons. Yeah. It sounds like you've done a ton of introspection on this. Were, were there any particular resources or books or anything that you consumed that helped you get to this sort of realization or was this kind of pure introspection? I mean, a, a real amalgamation of lots of things. I started meditating at the time. Um, started doing therapy, which I think is everyone should do, even if you're not going through burnout. Agreed. I think still do that now. I feel completely fine. And uh, uh, I think therapy is just a great thing to do. It's like you go to the gym, you should see a therapist. Um, um, and yeah, a lot of just a lot of reading and just kind of understanding myself and understanding what my motivations were. You know, a lot of introspection, writing things down on a piece of paper, just write a brain drain. You know, everything that comes yeah. to your mind, write it down and see what comes out. And you'll start seeing themes occur and just question everything well, why do i think like that why do i want to make a lot of money okay but why do why is that important to me for what reasons um and then you kind of come up with some answers and you know towards the the career side of things there's a book i would recommend everyone read called now discover your strengths mm -hmm. i think it's by a guy called mark buckingham if i'm not mistaken could be wrong um 
But my um, VP of sales, uh, Nicholas Marche, he recommended that to me about two, three years ago, maybe. Um, and I wish I read that a lot earlier. Uh, and this book effectively states that everybody has their natural talents. And the best thing to do is figure out what your talents are or your strengths, and then build skills on top of those naturally occurring talents. So if I'm not naturally good at math, but I can build skills on top of that. Like I studied accounting and finance. Like I didn't, I'm not that great at math, but you can build that skill. But is that the best way? No, because I'm not naturally talented at that. But I'm naturally talented at speaking with people and interacting with people that I don't know. And I really get energy from that sort of situation. That might just be a natural talent or a strength. But what's a skill set that I could build on top of that? Well, negotiation, sales, so and so forth. And so reading that book, they break it down to about 30, 32, I think, different strengths. You'll read it and be like, oh, that's me. And mm -hmm. oh, that's really not me. And then you kind of get a kind of a picture of who you are. And that's a really good basis to then be like, okay, where should I then build a career on top of that? And what sort of skills and, and assets should I try and try and build? So that was a really good one. Uh, and then another book um, I would recommend, and this was actually recommended to me by a guy I worked with at Bloomberg, who was a lot older, um, had more experience. And it's called uh, Who Moved My Cheese? And it's a famous book. It's been read millions of times. I'm sure other people have already heard of this. It's a tiny little book. That. No. Have you not? Okay. No. It's amazing. Okay. It's it, it's a tale of a couple of mice who were trapped in a maze. And but it's a very very you could read it in about 20 minutes. Um, but it will really change your perspective on things. And effectively, the the moral of the story is, you know, life changes all the time. And there's two kind of people. There's people that uh, are nostalgic about the old times uh, and they want they kind of stuck in the old way and then there's others who you know see that the their cheese has moved um, and the opportunities have changed uh, and they adapt quickly to that they don't get comfortable in the status quo and so a lot of this friction when people get burnt out is you know, things change like when I was in Bloomberg there was three departments merged into one a third of people were made redundant and my job changed overnight and that change I really didn't like. I could see that coming actually, but I stayed there for long enough. And my yeah. issue was I didn't move quick enough. I didn't change my my reaction to that uh, quick enough. Yeah, yeah. It, it reminds me of this. Uh, I was listening to a Sam Harris podcast the other day. I forgot who was interviewing, but it's this idea of like chosen suffering. Like you might have decided on the goals that you want to achieve, but have you thought about the type of suffering you'll have to go through to achieve those goals? And if, yes. if not, you should probably think about that and ask yourself if you're willing to go through that type of suffering. Whereas, you know, once you reflect and you decide, actually, this is really fucking hard, but I'm willing to go through the challenges in order to achieve that goal. It completely changes the narrative you tell yourself and whether or not you get burned out. 100%. And, and this is the difference of like the hard work and, and the reason the alignment, because there is a difference between pain and suffering. You know, pain. You can't. You can't. You, you can't choose whether you experience pain. That kind of just will happen. Right? Life happens, but you can choose whether you suffer. The suffering is your reaction to the pain. And you know, what's the difference between working really hard in a job you don't like and a job you do like? You're still working really hard. You're doing the hours. You're tired. You need more coffee. It's the same situation. It's the same pain response, uh, or the pain, same pain stimulation. But the suffering, the response is different. You either yeah. suffer or you don't. And, and that is all mental. So, yeah, yeah, love it. And we'll make sure to link to those books in the show notes as well. Um, so, I have a couple questions that we can uh, use to wrap up this conversation. 
you can take as much time as you'd like to respond to them. Uh, first one I, I love to ask, ask is what's an opinion you have about business that you think most people would disagree with? Mm, this is, um, yeah, <clears throat> this is like the, the, from the Peter Till question, right? The, uh, yeah. What's the unpopular opinion? I love this question. Um, I'm not sure if it's just specifically applicable to business or just in life in general and therefore applicable to business. But I think most problems in the world can be solved by starting with yourself and taking ownership over your input and rather than kind of externally trying to change things. I spend more of my time trying to change myself than I think trying to change uh, other things outside. Um, and it's not so much I think that people would consciously disagree with that. But in, in terms of um, a lot of people's actions, I think many people, their actions would indicate that they'd be trying to change the external things rather than focusing on what they can do about it. And I think that creates the, a lot less friction if you start with the man in, in the mirror. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of, I keep quoting all these other books, but I'm just tying a lot of dots of like Jocko Willing's book, if you heard of it, or Extreme yeah, Ownership. Yeah. Like, yeah. oh, someone didn't understand you. You didn't communicate good enough. Like, it's all on you. Um, it's true. Love it. Yeah. What's it? Ch- it, it, ch- it, ch- it honest, just the last thing on that. It really does change your interactions with the world and people when you take that. It doesn't mean that you're responsible for everything, but if you just own what you can control, like the world just seems to change. Things are things work out for the better. It's 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 a powerful book. Yeah, love it. And it sounds like you've had a couple mentors or folks you've you've turned to and learned from throughout the years. So, what's the most impactful piece of advice you've been given? Um, that's a very hard question. It's not meant to stump you. Could be, could be any yeah. piece of advice. <laughs> but there's just many different routes I could go down, but there's, um, I think it, there's, um, it's either like an Oscar acceptance speech or a, a, a college degree, um, like reward ceremony speech that is from Matthew McConaughey. And I really like it because he, He's asked a question of like who who's his idol, etc. And ultimately, the answer is it's his future self, and it's not other people. And the point of his story, and again, maybe you can link it down in, in the show notes. It's it's really good to watch. Is effectively that like you shouldn't compare yourself to other people or external things. You should just compare yourself to who you you were yesterday. And it's like, should you compare? You know how much you can squat in the gym to the guy that's standing next to you, or should you compare yourself to what you squatted last week and, and where you are now? And I think when you can actually align yourself there, the, the world becomes a much prettier place because most people are generally improving a lot of the time compared to who they were before. And if you actually sat down um, and wrote everything down that you've achieved and how you've grown and changed and improved, it's, it's quite positive. It's only when you compare things to that out of your control, you can't control if someone else is better than you at this period in time, they're on a different trajectory, a different story. Um, and then the second one is there was a quote, I think it's from, um, Sam, the, the, the guy from Y Combinator. Um, and he, he was saying, it's not about the Y intercept. It's about the rate of growth. And basically what he's trying to say is Mm. it's not where you start your curve it's the rate of growth of the curve you know and that that speaks a lot to me because the whole thing with the investment banking thing when i was younger 
um, I always felt like I was two steps behind because all these kids had they'd already done an internship and they've already done this thing and they got them the next step and I never had that because no one talked about that when I was in school it wasn't on the car so yeah I was just always two steps behind and um, I always had a chip on my shoulder about it and I think that again going into the startup world it's one of the reasons why I love it is the people that succeed are the ones who have the biggest you know who are the biggest learners and have the biggest growth mindset. And so it doesn't matter where you start, it's how quick you then progress. And so that's the the kind of two, two big things for me. Focus on yourself and where you are from yesterday and tomorrow. And it's your growth of, of uh, progression that, that matters, not where you started. Yeah, I, I love that. I think we might've had maybe some, some similarities in our upbringings. I had no clue what to do around applying for college. Uh, I once went on a date with someone and they're like, oh, what, what Ivy League school did you want to go to? And I told her, I didn't know what an Ivy League school was in high school. What, what the <laughs> hell is that? Uh, and it, it just totally confused this person. Um, but yeah, I, lo- I love the idea of just comparing yourself to yourself. That's something I've personally had to learn the hard way as well. Um, you kind of answered this question, but I'm, I'm going to ask it anyway, because I'm curious if you have a different answer. Who are you chasing professionally? Who do you admire professionally that you kind of look to as a a model i mean uh yeah it's exactly what i just said a minute ago yeah. it's the, it's the best version of myself really yeah and any and any time it starts to veer off of that is when i have negative mental thoughts and um and tend to get burnt out and stressed and i think it's like as long as it's the best version of me that's the most important yeah well what do you do when you get down those uh unfavorable paths i think i mean i think it's very relevant considering we're going into year number three of a pandemic, uh, folks have kind of been left to maybe some of those thoughts more than usual. How do you kind of work through those situations? Yeah. So whenever I'm having like, um, uh, like a, a rough kind of period mental health wise, I always see that that's like what I'm experiencing is a symptom of something. And for me, it's really time to first do an audit and it's an audit of, okay, what, firstly, what am I eating? Because it has a huge impact on your, your mental health and your, your physical health has a huge impact on your mental health. So what am I eating? And there's always often a correlation when I'm eating bad, eating lots of sugar, you know, high starchy kind of foods and just junk food uh, over a period of time. So I clean up my diet is the number one thing. And then I say, okay, how much am I moving? Am I exercising? Am I burning calories? And not just walking, but high intensity. How much am I sweating? How much is my heart rate above a certain period of time? Uh, and effectively, if it's, again, there's a genuinely strong correlation. If I'm not consistent with eating well or, or being physically fit, um, then all the other stuff tends to go downhill as well. So I kind of fix those two uh, things first. Um, and then the other the third thing is I, I lay all the things out. And a lot of the time when I'm stressed, it's because I'm trying to control things that are outside of my control. And so I write a list down of everything that is, what is in my control and what is outside of my control and the things that are outside of my control i can underline them and put them to one side of the page and then the ones that are inside my control i say well what am i actually doing to impact that in the direction that i want it to and some of the time or a lot of the time i'm probably not actually doing anything about the things i can control and i'm just focused on the things i can't and getting frustrated at them and that is a pretty healthy kind of introspection exercise whenever you're having a tough time but then you have to do the hard work and take the steps, clean up your diet, get out, go for a run and, uh, and get up your ass and do something about those things that you can control. Yeah, it's fascinating then, that diet and, and some sort of physical activity are the first two things you go to uh, before 
that list of things in your control, it sounds like um, yeah. you're thinking about it very holistically. Well, I think that for me, I, I what I focus on tends to end up going the wrong way when my just general lifestyle isn't good. Like if I'm not having good social, and one thing I didn't put in there, I definitely should have alongside with the eating well and exercising is your social connections. Like, are you spending enough time with your respective partner uh, with your friends, with your family, do you feel connected? Are you do you have things that are important outside of work, for example, that are going well? Are you enjoying your hobbies? Like those things also are really important as well. Um, and I think if those bases aren't covered, then whatever the stress is in the work side, for example, is just amplified. And I think you can kind of you know decrease a lot of that just by making sure your other things are in check. Yeah, yeah, I love that idea of writing down a list of what's under your control too. Because once you lay that out, then you can actually decide, okay, I can actually do something about this. Do I want to, or is it even that important to me? Um, that that sounds like a great exercise that we, we could all be doing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So last question, where can people find you on the internet? Yeah. Um, easiest way uh, is either on LinkedIn. Uh, if you actually want to speak to me and get a reply, um, it's pretty hard on LinkedIn. Um, but if you... I, I reply to anyone who, that uh, sends an email after my newsletter. So it goes out every <coughs> um, Monday evening or Tuesday morning, depending on, on where you live in the world. Um, and if you reply back to that, um, I, I reply to everyone that sends a, a response to those emails. So if you actually want to get in touch, that's the best way. And if you want to uh, join up to the newsletter, it's Rocket GTM. You can go to rocketgtm.co, rocketgtm.co, uh, and you can just subscribe and, and you'll uh, get that in your inbox every Sunday. Awesome. We'll make sure to add that to the show notes. Thanks again for the time, Alfie. This was an awesome conversation. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me.